Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest talk. And this will be on pancreatic tumors, neuroendocrine, and beyond. And this is a talk I gave at a meeting just a couple days ago. And so I went through a lot of the material and uh, I've used before, though I've never really lectured on this topic for a long time. And I'm really focusing on neuroendocrine tumors and then some of the things that go beyond adenocarcinoma and neuroendocrine tumors. So the first thing is, these are the typical tumors that we used to call islet cell tumors, and now they're called pancreatic endocrine tumors, abbreviation PET. Uh, the term is no longer acceptable because of evidence that they do not arise in the islets of Langerhans, but rather from ductal pluripotent stem cells. Good article and review by Lewis. And in that article, they also comment that well-differentiated uh, uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are characterized as those that are producing a distinct clinical syndrome, which are the functioning or syndromic tumors, and those that do not, which are considered the non-syndromic or non-functioning. And Ralph Rubin and Hopkins would make the point not that they're non-functioning, but they're not hyperfunctioning. So again, hyperfunctioning versus non-hyperfunctioning, and syndromic versus non-syndromic. Now some numbers. Um, the prevalence of these tumors is 1 in 100,000. They make up about 1 to 2% of pancreatic tumors, though I will admit I'm seeing them more frequently now. They're most common in the fourth to fifth decade of life, often a bit earlier than classic pancreatic adenocarcinoma. About half are non-functioning, so which means half are functioning or hyperfunctioning. And the majority are sporadic, though a few, 1 to 2%, are going to be part of a syndrome. Now, when we speak about these type of tumors, we typically think about six things, and you can see the list here. And what's interesting is they often have an associated syndrome with them, which have very specific symptoms in some cases. So the one you're probably most familiar with is insulinoma. That's a typical presentation of a female, youngish female who's hypoglycemic, and you're looking for an insulinoma. Challenges with insulinomas, as you'll see, where the lesions are small. But now a CT with very fast scanning, these small vascular lesions are easy to see. Second thing, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome or gastrinoma. Again, that syndrome is something we all know about. Very thick gastric folds are the classic thing you'll see on CT. And you see, these gastric, and you see this gastrinoma, a vascular lesion. We talk about something referred to us from the... Uh, patients, um, dermatologists, then we talk about glucagonomas, where they get a dermatitis that's very classic as part of the 4D syndrome. We talk about the rare VIP-omas, which have this profuse watery diarrhea. We talk about somatostenomas, which are more common in patients with neurofibromatosis. And we talk about, of course, non-functioning. Now, size is somewhat important in the sense that insulinomas are small, typically under two centimeters. And most of them, from glucagonomas to VIPomas and down, are large in the 5 to 6 centimeter range. Some are more common in the region of the pancreatic head. And gastrinomas is the classic thing we think about, where they can be even in the duodenum, not necessarily pancreatic. And the duodenal ones are actually smaller than the primary pancreatic ones. So again, location can be very critical. And of course, things like insulinomas, they're small, but they can be seen throughout the gland. And in fact, they can be multiple. So again, that's something to think about in terms of the various lesions that we'll be looking at. And again, a VIP-OMA, rare, but with the symptoms and location, pretty good to think about. Now, I mentioned about syndromes, and here are three commonly associated syndromes, MEA1, von Hippel-Lindau, and neurofibromatosis. And we'll touch on those a little bit later. 
Now, in terms of CT findings for these neuroendocrine tumors, typically it's a circumscribed solid mass that displaces rather invades adjacent structures. They're typically hypervascular. They're not always. They're particularly hypervascular on early phase imaging. Again, the caveat being you're injecting four to five cc's a second. They wash out fairly quickly, but still look vascular on venous phase imaging. That's particularly true when you compare it to adenocarcinoma. The small lesions are homogeneous, but the larger lesions often have areas of necrosis. Some of the smaller tumors can be cystic, and we do see cystic neuroendocrine tumors where the key finding only seen on arterial phase imaging is wall or rim enhancement, and these are often the smaller lesions. So if you don't have that early phase, they look just like an IPMN or some other pancreatic cystic lesion. So that indeed can be important. One of the things with neuroendocrine tumors, of course, is their liver metastasis are going to be vascular, and their nodal diseases are often vascular as well. Occasionally, and the word occasionally is emphasized, venous phase images show the lesion better, but this is indeed rare. And I'll show you some cases, and I have many cases where if you don't have arterial phase imaging, you can miss a three or four centimeter lesion. When I do neuroendocrine tumors, it's always a dual phase study with the arterial phase being most key. Injection rate, try to hit five cc's, depending on patient size, 100 to 120 cc's of contrast. And again, thin sections because we're doing post-processing. Now, I mentioned about the arterial phase, and this is a wonderful example. If you look at these images, this is about 60 seconds out. Very pretty study, but you really can't see a pancreatic mass. There's no dilated ducts. There's no common duct or pancreatic duct. An important thing to mention when I talk about differential diagnosis later, and I'll re-emphasize it, is one of the interesting things with neuroendocrine tumors, even when they get larger, they tend not to obstruct ducts. Pancreatic cancer essentially always obstructs the duct, like adenocarcinoma always obstructs, depending where it's located, pancreatic duct and common duct, or just pancreatic duct. But again, uh, Look at this case, there's no ductilitation. You don't see a mass, but if I give you the arterial phase imaging, there indeed is the mass. It's about a three centimeter mass. This ended up being an insulinoma, but look how easy it is to see, side by side, how easy it is to see and how easy it is to miss. It's somewhat scary that if you don't do the protocol correctly, you can miss a three centimeter mass that was causing this patient's critical symptoms. This patient will get a Whipple's procedure, tumor resected, patient will do fine. And you can see here's the CTA very, very nicely, uh, showing you that enhancing lesion. I mentioned these lesions can also be very large. And what's interesting is when they're large, they involve vessels, no great surprise. But one interesting thing is I'll show you, with adenocarcinoma, you encase the vessel, you narrow the vessels, particularly on the venous side. But with neuroendocrine tumors, they grow into the vessel and you kind of see a meniscus sign. So here we can follow down a very large mass in the head, body, and tail of the pancreas. Then as we follow it on to the, from arterial phase, where you can see the extent of the tumor, to venous phase, you really see the portal vein thrombosis, where it's a huge thrombus. You see the collateral vessels. There it is nicely on the coronal view. Now, this case also tells you another finding that's very common in neuroendocrine tumors, and that's calcification. You don't see calcification in pancreatic adenocarcinoma unless there's a patient with cancer who had prior chronic pancreatitis. But with neuroendocrine tumors, it's very common to get punctate calcifications centrally or distributed through the gland. It'll be very variable. And just really a nice example showing you those huge collaterals. So now you got a point, you have some reference to what we're talking about. Vascular lesions, sometimes very vascular, like the case of the, ins of the insulinoma, 
but large masses at times, calcification, vessel invasion. So let's look a little bit carefully and more specifically at the lesions. So insulinoma, most common functioning neuroendocrine tumor, 40% of all functioning neuroendocrine tumors. It's usually sporadic, but accounts for about 10 to 30% of functioning pets and patients with MEN1. Average age of presentation is 47 years and is more common in females than it is in males. A little bit less than 10% are considered malignant. The, there's a triad, which is called Whipple's triad. The key thing about the triad is hypoglycemia, low blood glucose, and relief of symptoms with the administration of glucose. Though so again, the history of hypoglycemia, you gotta be thinking about an insulinoma. It was difficult to detect these with CT in the past. Majority are under two centimeters in size and 40% are under a centimeter. They're usually solitary but can be multiple and can occur in any part of the gland. When they're malignant, they tend to be larger and spread to nodes. These days, CT is in the 90 to 95% accuracy rate. And look how nicely we can do. Look at this case. I'm showing you here a 5 millimeter insulinoma. Very impressive indeed. Here it is again, and here it is with the MIP imaging very nicely shown. Again, those are the kind of lesions we can easily detect. And here it is in a coronal display. You can see the lesion, again, very nicely defined. And here's the second case. This is a bit larger, about three centimeters. This is the case I showed you a moment ago, emphasizing arterial phase imaging, easy to see, venous phase imaging, can't see it at all, showing you nicely on the MIP imaging from the arterial data set. Now, I've seen insulinomas missed. Sometimes people confuse them with vessels. This one, I don't think you have a problem. Looks somewhat like the last one, hypervascular lesion. Not quite as bright as the aorta, but pretty close. You see to the right, to the left of it, the uh, portal vein, which is not yet opacified. Coronal views at times, if you're at all uncertain, do make life easier. But look at this next case. This was read as negative. And you see the arrow, I'm showing you the lesion. I don't know what the person reading it was thinking or not thinking, but they thought this was a vessel for some reason or other. It's not the vessel. You can see the SMA, the SMV is not yet opacified. And when you do it, the coronal, you recognize it's not a vessel because it's very focal. Now I will admit I've seen GDA aneurysms and hepatic artery aneurysms in that region, which can be confusing. But in this case, I think you can follow the vessels. It's not anything related to the vessel. And so what we're talking about here, we're talking about an insulinoma. Very nicely seen here. Just a couple more pictures. Really nice example. And just like the other case I showed you, classic visualization on the MIP imaging, vascular lesion. So MIPs can be very valuable in this regard. Now this case, you can see two images. Uh, about 30 seconds apart, showing you how the image on the left, the lesion is barely visible. And again, with insulinomas and with neuroendocrine tumors in general, I could make the quote that timing is everything. You need to be in the right place at the right time to make the right diagnosis. Okay, what else? Gastronomas. This is a classic thing described by Zollinger and Ellison as a triad of peptic ulcers in unusual locations in the presence of gastric acid hypersecretion and a neuroendocrine tumor. They're the second most common functioning neuroendocrine tumors, but occur with a frequency less than half of insulinomas. Peak incidence is fifth decade of life, slightly more common in men, and most cases are sporadic, but they can occur with MEN1. So that's 
about up to 25% of all gastrinomas in these patients. 60% of gastrinomas develop malignant behavior. So with insulinomas, it's rare. With gastrinomas, it's not uncommon. Key diagnostic point from a lab perspective, elevated gastrin levels lead to pelvic ulcer disease, which is often severe and often pulse bulbar in location. I remember as a resident, when we did lots of fluoroscopy, that'd be one of the quiz cases people would show you, these really bad-looking ulcers in unusual locations. If you measure serum gastrin levels, they're usually over 100, with, no, with over 1,000, with normal being under 100. So it's really way off the scale. In terms of findings, a key thing of gastrinoma is location. They occur in what's called the gastrinoma triangle, which is an area bounded by the junctions of the cystic and common bile ducts superiorly. So picture that. Second and third portions of the duodenum uh, inferiorly, and the neck and body of the pancreas medially. Uh, up to 80% of gastrinomas originate from the duodenum, and the duodenum ones are really hard to find because they're under a centimeter or so in size. The pancreatic, one, the pancreatic ones tend to be easier. They're in the three to four centimeter range. Again, they're typically vascular, which really makes a diagnosis possible with the smaller lesions. And here's a very nice drawing showing you that gastrinoma triangle. So if you're thinking gastrinoma, you gotta look really carefully. Do the study with volumen to stand the small bowel because the ones you're gonna miss are the duodenal ones. The pancreatic ones, you're not gonna miss. And so here's a nice example showing you the lesion in the duodenum. There's actually several small lesions here. Very, very nice example. Uh, here's another case. Look at the size of the patient's gastric folds. So just a very, very nice example of very large gastric folds. Could it be mitriase disease, some other process that's a possibility. But when you see large gastric folds, abdominal pain, Surely if the gastrin levels elevate, it's a home run diagnosis. Your job is to find the lesion. Now, sometimes we found lesions away from the pancreas. We found them in the mesentery, but you're typically going to find them. So again, look very carefully. Look throughout the gland. If you can't find something in the duodenum or head of pancreas, look at the rest of the gland. What else? Leukogonomas. Average age is about 40 to 60. Female to male is about 1 to 1. And we mentioned that most of them are indeed sporadic. Most are malignant, and the majority invariably end up being fatal, typically seen in the body or tail of the pancreas, and as part of this 4D syndrome. And as I mentioned, this is the one thing that will actually come to you from dermatologists because they have this very unusual rash. And dermatologists do recognize it. It must be something on their boards. But it's dermatitis, diabetes, DVTs, and depression. So it's a vascular lesion, large, five to six centimeters, and they often have metastasis, especially to the liver. Okay, what else? VIPomas. They secrete uh, a, a process that leads to profuse watery diarrhea and hypokalemia. Uh, so that's very, very classic. Werner Morrison syndrome is what people talk about. It's described as pancreatic cholera because that's the only other thing that gives you such severe diarrhea. Around 75% of VIPomas arise in the pancreas, 20% are extra pancreas and neurogenic, and the remainder are extra pancreatic and non-neurogenic. It's most common in the tail of the pancreas, again, that five to six centimeters size, and most are malignant with metastasis present at time of presentation in 60 to 80% of cases. And here's just a really good example. Very large lesion, necrosis, 
Um, this is going to be a neuroendocrine tumor, no matter how you look at it. I guess at first glance, you can say adrenal, but the adrenal is fine. You can say some sort of retroperitoneal sarcoma. Theoretically, you can look at this and say maybe it's a gist tumor. I couldn't argue with that. But when you start looking at all the lesions, look at that funny shape that lesion has. Um, again, thinking about a neuroendocrine tumor, think about VIPoma based on location. Again, the history becomes critical. And here it is when it washes out. It really washes out very impressively with the areas of necrosis pretty nicely seen. And you can see it across the way. The last one, I think, is somatostatinomas. Very small, very rare tumor. Uh, male to female is about 1 to 1. Average age of presentation is 50. Again, uh, periampulary region of the duodenum, pancreatic head of the common zones. And this is the one with neurofibromatosis 1. And I've seen several cases, and they're always with neurofibromatosis. 80% are incidental findings, while 20% have some symptoms, ranging from, di ranging from diabetes to diarrhea to weight loss. Somatostatin inhibits intestinal absorption and release of insulin, glucagon, gastrin, and pancreatic enzymes, which leads to many of the symptoms we're talking about above. So it's variable how the patients will present. Again, pancreatic head is most common, and these lesions are large. So again, clinical history becomes helpful. Here's a nice example of one of them sitting right in the patient's uh, duodenum near the ampulla. Very, very classic findings. Now, those are the functioning tumors. Now we get into the non-functioning tumors, which we mentioned are the most common, and just a few words about that. As I mentioned, the neuroendocrine tumors are becoming more common. Often we'll pick them up incidentally. I've seen a lot of cases now which are incidental findings. So again, it becomes very, very important. So what we'll do is let's take a break right now, and then we'll come back and discuss the non-functioning neuroendocrine tumors, okay? See you in a few minutes. Thanks a lot.